I'm here today to tell you whether or not three hours and 27 minutes of your time is worth spending on Seven Samurai. How's that for a lead? <laughs> yeah. Well, at least this podcast won't go on that long. Hopefully. Oh, we're going there. <laughs> one minute of analysis for every one minute of film. Oh, my goodness. And then Buckle they up. rode into town, and there they are riding. Did you right. see the way the black and the white really contrasted themselves <laughs> in that shot? <laughs> Akira Kurosawa. I can't even say his name. Kurosawa. Akira Kurosawa is a genius. He is a genius. Apologies, Kurosawa. Yes. Your use of black and white is mesmerizing. Black and white is Put awesome. me to sleep multiple times. I grew but up in black and white I digress. Times. Yeah. I digress. <laughs> You grew up in black and white times. <laughs> How was it? I've I've wondered about that. Yeah, like, what was, was it like before that we had a color palette? In yeah, the world? no, it was it was uh, things were much clearer then. You saw the shadows for what they were. You right. saw the light streaming down from above. Of course, it was it was just white light, but you know, it but was still, it it either was or it wasn't. There was there was either light exactly or darkness exactly and, and shades of gray. A few shades of gray, but... But you didn't have these blues and these yellows yeah. and these mauves and teals. Confusing matters. See, it's it's it confusing all... to me why, with all the flack that millennials get and iGen or Gen Z, whatever you want to call them, gets, but we just don't know what it's like to grow up in a world without color. Like, yeah. we ought to have, as millennials and iGens, we ought to have more em- sympathy. Yeah, all you have is filters. Filters for your stupid iPhones. We have uh, we, we have color. We change color. We you guys never lived. had nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I and actually, it's really interesting when I talk with my parents about you know their sepia tone childhood, mm. how different that was, where everything had sort of that yellow brownish right. tint. So, but their their childhood was boring compared to mine. Yeah, and yet we, with all the color we have, are struggling with more depression now, or is it just more diagnosed? I don't know. But I just I think we ought I think to, it boggles the senses actually. Yeah, there's just too much for us. Too much. We it need was a to simple go back. life. We need to revert to a black and white world. Mm. Who sw- who flips that switch? We'll uh, I'll ask around. All right. I'll see. Dig in on that. Dig in on that for me. <laughs> that was really strange. <laughs> it's gonna be a great opener. Mm. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> How many samurai are there? Seven or six, Paul? Ooh, that's a good question, isn't it? Uh, talking about Kurosawa's famous seven samurai, of course, the title says seven, but not all the samurai are necessarily full-fledged samurai. I don't even know how you become a full-fledged samurai, actually. Right. I'm a little unclear. I think as a Western viewer, some of, that, some of the nuances of yeah. Kurosawa's brilliance are lost on me because I'm like... If they got a samurai sword, they're a samurai. Exactly. And then you have the question, could there even be five samurai? Because the youngest samurai... Right. Was he really a samurai? Right. Or was he just like a samurai's apprentice? Should this movie have just been the samurai's apprentice? (laughs) The five five samurai, the farmer's kid, and the samurai's apprentice. 
Yeah. It would have been a less interesting. Well, well what, yeah. I don't know. Could have walking been a, Brooms. Fighting Walking, walking brooms? brooms? That would have been great. Why? Like, that's an interesting title. Why the f- Walking Brooms? The Magician's Apprentice, right? From the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Oh, okay. I see. You were jumping properties. Yeah, exactly. You were jumping properties. Going right to Fantasia. Disney, Fantasia. See, uh, I only saw that like once when I was like five. Oh, what's wrong And I hadn't you? ever had LSD. <laughs> So I didn't appreciate it. I I grew up with LSD. Right. Paul grew up in a world without color. And so that's why they had – you needed LSD. We needed the LSD for the color. Right. It it enlivened our world. It it blew your minds and that's why Disney made Fantasia. He was like, look, the the youths of today, they don't – they don't appreciate this. They need to know what it's like to live in a world of black and white and then be bombarded by this explosion of color. So he made Fantasia to just bombard the senses with color and sound. Yeah, I cried all the way through. Did you? No. Because you were scared? Or <laughs> no, it was just I, so I gotta beautiful, tell you. you wept. Exactly. Well, it was just one of those things, the, the overload of the senses. It was amazing. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's one of those where if you – if I I – I can't even I can't even describe how I felt when I saw Fantasia because I was just because you were just five. I was just five. And, I can tell you. And you know what? LSD. LSD. <laughs> no, I also saw Fantasia when I was five, but I know exactly how I felt. Yeah. I know exactly how did you I felt. feel? Maybe it was because of the LSD. But I really loved the dancing hippos. I thought that was great. That I, was definitely the LSD. <laughs> I was I was bored to tears by. The whole uh, Pegasi floating around. You you don't even remember. I don't remember. You don't even remember. No. How can you not have watched Fantasia since then? Because. That should be on your I don't do drugs. But I was terrified. <laughs> I think we've talked about this. I was terrified of the of the demon at the end. Well, yeah. Oh. Rightfully so. Yeah. You know, hello, children. If I really Welcome was. Welcome to the punch. If I hadn't been doing LSD. I would never have come out of my house again. <laughs> never, ever, ever. Uh, oh my goodness, that was so scary. But we're not even talking about Fantasia today. No, we're talking about its spiritual predecessor. <laughs> you know, a movie that's so much like it that people compare it all, all the, the time. All the time, yes. And that's Seven Samurai. Oh my goodness. Which we alluded to. And I, it, it, it is funny because it's a classic image of the samurai standing, staring at the distance. I noted this on Twitter and was mocked for it, so thank you, <laughs> Rob Kirkpatrick, for that. Um, that on, and the cl- on the DVD cover, this classic image of the samurai in the field, you know, looking strong into the distance. It's only got six samurai on there. Only six samurai. Only six. And then you watch the movie, and you're like, well, really, there's only five right. samurai. Yeah. Well, yeah. And even those, it's like, well, they're a bunch of losers. <laughs> Not a bunch of losers. They are. They literally are. They're they get, super they, cool. They well, they they become cool as we watch. They but do. They they. they the only lose, reason they come, but yeah, the only reason they come with the farmers. The farmers can't get any other samurai. Yeah. Because they don't have enough money. But these guys are the loser samurais who have never won a battle in their lives. <laughs> Except for the one dude. The one dude who's like a great swordsman. Oh yeah. See, see now there's so many you're, nuances you're, you're in here I'm missing. In here. You're, there's so you're many nuances I'm missing. To, to a lot of conclusions here. <laughs> you know, we heard one Leaping. samurai say that he had not won a lot of battles. And then we one of the dudes know. is like his old buddy. Well, that's that true. He went into a lot of those battles with. But he so says at least at the two end, of the samurai. So now we're down end, to three samurai who may have won a battle. <laughs> 
we're already jumping to the very end of the movie. We should actually no, probably... No, this is the beginning. No! The first hour and a half of this movie is the farmers crying and screaming and searching for samurai. Okay, all right. So let's 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 get <laughs> people. I'm Tarantinoing this bit. bad boy. Let's, let's just talk a little bit about what the movie's actually all right. about, and that's really easy to do because you sort of just said it, right? Yeah. So you have these pheasants who are farmers. sitting around. They're they're farmers. They it's farm rice and barley. 16th century Japan. Exactly. When it's a great time of chaos, there wasn't a lot of centralized government. So you have all these bandits running free along the the. Yeah, a lot forest torn by civil war. Yeah, bandits just. Pardon me, guys. It's my. Uh, <laughs> I'm supposed to be waking up now. Apparently, that's my my alarm. All right, there we go. That's how early we're doing. This. <laughs> that's when I normally wake up. In the day. It's a good sign. This is when the podcast really needs to start right here because <laughs> the, the first part just already went way off the rails. Okay, yeah. so we've got these peasants. Bandits are rampaging across the the lands of Japan. They attack these peasants. They take, take, take everything they need. Right, exactly. It's a terrible thing. And they so, come, they eat, they leave. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It, they're like a plague of locusts, yeah. only on horses. And so you have these these peasants. They decide to fight back. They decide that they are going to stop these bandits from taking all their rice and barley. So they go into town and they try to hire some samurai. Yeah. But since they only have rice and barley to give, it's a little bit hard, right? It's very difficult. You know, they themselves are poor and essentially naked and eating millet so that they can give the last of their remaining rice to some samurai and the samurai are like look people pay us in like booze and women not in <laughs> not in rice and beans and cool swords and, and stuff yeah and so they have a hard time attracting right. samurai to the cause it's like cuz like their their village elders like yeah go get like one samurai and they're like okay we'll go get one and then they go and they get one and that guy's like well we're going to need at least seven and so then they go back and tell the village elder, and he's like, I said one, but I guess seven's fine. Yeah. <laughs> he actually said, you know what? I figured we were actually going to need 10, yeah. but if I asked, I asked for 10, we would get like 15 or 23, and we can't afford that. <laughs> we can't even afford one. So yeah. uh, these, so really the, the first part of the movie is a lot of crying, a lot of, crying. A lot of groveling. And uh, some slow-mo death scenes. I'll have to say that was my favorite part. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> the slow-mo death I was actually scenes. most disappointed that he abandoned that after the first half of the film. Because like, when you, when they're first getting all the samurai right. and you see a couple of them get kills. Right. So maybe they haven't lost every battle. Maybe a couple of them have skills. And they they take down their opponent. They fall to the ground in slow motion. Yeah. And I was like, well, that was pretty advanced. Let's let's just rewind here for a minute. Since you keep coming back to this losing thing, I, <laughs> I have to remind you that at the very end, they win the battle. Uh, spoiler alert: they win the battle. Right? They save the peasants. Well, but you so you you rewound to the future. I rewound. Yeah, well, I'm rewinding. Let me your rewind to the end of the movie real <laughs> I'm quick. I'm rewinding your conversation, and I'm fast forwarding to the end of the movie, <laughs> where they say they say, and they're they're looking at the happy peasants and everything, and they say, "We lost again. Yeah. We always lose." And so, so I'm right. <sighs> but they technically won. <laughs> Did they? <laughs> well, see Did that's, they? that is. 
that is the beauty of Kurosawa. Yeah. I mean, at that point, he puts it all in perspective. Like, how many of the battles in the past did they win? Because what we do see is that these end up being a talented group of five samurai, a samurai's apprentice, and a farmer's child. <laughs> and, and, and so how many... Farmer's child. That's all we know about him. That's all we know it's about true. Him. It's yeah. true. And he's and a little crazy. He's, he's nuts. Kikuchio. Kikuchio. He's Kikuchio. sort of the star of the show. He really, he really is, and that's because him and Akira were like BFFs. Yeah. I was doing some research on this, and I was looking through Akira's, uh, Kurosawa's other films. Right. And one I've never seen. Did you watch them all now? Any of them. Mm-hmm. I haven't even seen, I haven't seen Rashomon either. That's, no, I haven't seen that. Uh, which is his other probably most famous one outside of uh, Seven Samurai. Mm-hmm. But between 1947 and 1965, Akira Kurosawa made 17 movies. A lot, of movies. a lot of movies. Toshiro Mifune, who plays Kikuchio, the crazy, nuts right. guy that pretends to be a samurai, but really he was just a, a, a you know, parentless farmer's kid right. whose parents were murdered by uh, samurai. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in 16 of 17 of those movies in that span. So like That's he amazing. and Kurosawa were, yeah. were BFFs. Yeah. No, I think I think the only other Kurosawa movie that I've seen is Throne of Blood, which is a redoing of of Macbeth. It's brilliant. It's the I it's one of my favorite foreign movies of all time. I think he was Macbeth in that. So yeah. he can do other things besides act crazy, but he does a very good crazy person here. He does. An interesting little bit of trivia about this just just from my perspective yeah. because I watched it over is you know in in loyal solidarity with you i i watched the whole 207 minute movie and i watched it with my son who had never seen it before my son mentioned and i think that this is pretty interesting that he felt a lot like this traditional um asian um hero called the monkey king you know mm-hmm. yes uh he and he did react very very much like a monkey in some some ways. And right. So, he le- he kind of he likes to crouch and leap and right, cackle right. and and the monkey king has always been sort of this this force for chaos in a way. You know, he's this hero, but you never know exactly what he's going to do, and so he's just a little bit crazy. And and yeah, my son was talking about there's there's a lot of similarities between this character and the monkey king, which I found really interesting when you think about sort of Japanese culture and, and how rooted it is within tradition and, and they have some of the same themes going for hundreds of thousands of years it seems um, I can totally see that maybe he would have taken some 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 pointers from the Monkey King when he was playing this role yeah well I, I think it's a great point I think that's why this movie still resonates the way it does like I, one thing I had to ask before I get to that point is did you guys watch it in one sitting no, we did not. We we stopped at the intermission. Okay. Because it really is. It's a three hour and thirty minute movie yeah. if you watch the whole thing. It has been back when it was first released for American audiences, they cut it down to just a paltry three hours. <laughs> but yeah, I think most everybody is watching the 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 original Kurosawa three thirty version and, and yeah, we could not sit through the whole yeah, I, I t- it took me. I did it in three chunks. Three chunks. Yeah, part of it is that I was watching pretty late at night. And oh yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I, you you'd fall asleep and you wake up. It's the same scene, but you know you missed something. 
<laughs> so I was like, all right, I got to rewind. And I don't know where I went. But it did take me three chunks. But anyways, why I think it – one of the things that struck me as I started to watch this because it's – in many ways it in many ways it doesn't age well because it's very melodramatic. Oh, I totally disagree. And – and it's very over the top and you're like, it's not it's not what I would call – there's many moments where I'm like, that's not what I'd call good acting. And it's got these cliches from old cinema that I, I find endearing but I don't think age well, like where somebody tells a joke and the entire city laughs for like five minutes. I'm like that's just not – that's not, never been my experience in life. <laughs> Maybe I'm just not funny. Maybe you're just not funny Maybe enough. I'm just not funny. No. No, whenever I tell a joke, everybody but. laughs for five minutes. <laughs> just like now. everybody, everybody yeah. who's there, yeah, they all just cackle for five <laughs> cackle. minutes. But in spite of that, in spite of some of those things being, you know, if they were in a movie now, if we put some of these things in a movie now, where as soon as, if somebody cries, they have to be screaming, or if somebody laughs, they have to be, you know, falling, raffling, rolling on the floor, laughing for five minutes, and it's everybody, and. Uh, you know, just uh, some of the melodrama. If that's in a movie now, we say, "Oh, that's ham. That's that's just ham." You know, it's too much. Right. It's 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 not good acting. In spite of that, though, I found this to be a very emotional movie. Yeah, yeah. and to actually be to be to feel very universal, even though there were things that I felt like I'm probably missing something because I don't understand this culture. The emotions of the movie and the story of the movie feel universal. Yeah. And I think that's why it resonates and I think that's why it's been remade in other forms so many times is, is – and why it actually does, in spite of my initial read of it, right. hold up well. Right. And why I still enjoyed it overall. Yeah. So and, – and I totally agree and disagree with you all at the same time. I think that the thing about – in, in some respects, and I'll get to, to what I disagree with you on first, what you say about the melodrama, the, the over-the-top reactions, I think that's a fair criticism. And I'm not, I'm not familiar enough with Japanese cinema to know kind right. of Right. That's kind where of it could be ignorance on my part. Exactly. And, but at the same time, when you think about, as you say, this is sort of a timeless story. It's almost this myth. And because of that, I think in some ways the melodrama sort of fits in with this myth. These, these are larger-than-life characters. They're talking about larger-than-life themes. And so everything is sort of elevated in, in because of that. One of the things that, that I understand Kurosawa did with this movie is, is he was really creative in terms of how he filmed it. And although you're, I think that the emotion, the emotion is one of the things that struck me as well. I mean, you see these, these really extravagant... Very, very angry people. Very, very sad people. Um, there's not very much in between sometimes. But when you look at the camera work, the how it is actually filmed feels very contemporary. Particularly oh, yeah. when you look at at back in the 1950s, how things were filmed. You you look at Ben Hur, which was sort of contemporary. I think no, that was that was a few years later. Um, but Ten Commandments or what what not. You have it felt. A lot of those old 1950s epics that we we know um, feel a little bit stationary right. compared to uh, Seven Samurai and, and what he did. The camera angles, the close-up shots, how he used this. He built an entire village for this movie yeah. to, to bring in the realism, to make it feel like it was real and tactile and tangible. 
Um, and so from a filming perspective, in terms of how the film actually just looks, even though it's in black and white, it feels quite contemporary, I think. And, and in that respect, I think it holds up. Yeah. No, that that I do agree with. You know, I, I was kind of joking about it earlier when I talked about the slow motion death, but you just didn't see that kind of thing mm-hmm. at the time. To see someone's body collapse and the dust kind of, you know, right, right. rise up around rise their up. body yeah. in slow motion, you know, felt contemporary. In this, like it almost it almost stood out too much in how bold it was compared to most of what you watch at the time. Yeah. And, and the way he frames certain shots, like the shot of, uh, at the end of the movie, when you see the, the three, the three samurai graves with the sword sticking up yeah. out of them and the other four at the base of the hill, um, looking up at them. Yeah. And it's just a powerful shot. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it is, the other thing that, that struck me that sort of surprised me a little bit, and again, this is very untypical from what, uh, from what 1950s movies were doing at the time. Um, it was all about this, a lot of American movies at the time, I think, were all about this huge scope. You had this, these casts of hundreds of thousands, and so you had these sweeping vistas and, and all this type of stuff. A lot of the shots felt very far away. Kurosawa in Seven Samurai did not fear getting very, very close to the people who he was filming. So much so that you could almost see their pores. I, I watched it on, on the Criterion uh, DVD, and okay. I don't know whether they've done some remastering or what, but it was amazing just how sharp and vivid. And again, because of the black and white uh, film that they used, there's something really beautiful about, I think, a, a film shot in black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, it brings to the forefront so much more light and shadow. And you see, I think, in some ways, a greater sense of depth than you do when, when it's a color movie. And I think that, that because of that, it felt the black and white filming actually makes it feel more timeless to me. Yeah. Well, it can help, you, it can help focus the eye. Just, right. you know... They have when you're using color, there are really creative ways you can focus the eye, and you know people do use that, and some directors use it more artfully than others. But with yeah. a black and white film, you know you can you're 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 dealing with very sharp contrast, right. and so the way you direct the eye, the way you capture the attention, is does have a different feel to it. It does have a different, it has a different weight to it. Yeah. Yeah, um, and a different, dr- like almost like a drama to it. There's a reason we still like to use yeah. black and white filters. Yeah, on our on the pictures that we take. Yeah, because it is it does lend itself to a sense of drama. You know, it's interesting because as we talk about it, I think that there what you say, I think there's a lot of validity to it, and I wonder whether um, black and white movies, at least for me, they feel more important more urgent in a way where and and i'm not saying that completely correctly it feels the stories feel weightier for some reason we've we've already talked a little bit about how seven samurai is sort of this universal archetypal story and i think that's really true when you when you step into the realm of of where it goes beyond a a powerful poignant story and, and transforms into this world of almost myth like a modern myth um, I think that black and white movies can can sort of bring a gravitas 
that that color films don't. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons, honestly, why Schindler's List still sticks with me so so long after I I've seen it because because of that black and white imagery. I think that that it just sort of sticks in your mind a little bit more and it heightens that sense of myth, that sense of archetype. Yeah, and I, I'm curious with that. I wonder how much of that is our nostalgia. Yeah, of the fact that you know those are the films that either we grew up with or our parents or grandparents grew up with. And so there was, those were the ones that they wanted to show us. And so there was something resonant, you know, when you watch it as a kid, even if it didn't end up being your favorite movie, there was something important about this is something that's important to my parents, or this Mm. is something that's important to my grandparents. And so I wonder how much of that is a sense of nostalgia or, and this is, and, or, and I think probably both play a role, how much of it is, Sort of like you talk about when how our senses are heightened when one of them is other senses are heightened when one is removed. So sort of like if you close your eyes, all of a sudden your ears kick into high gear, and because your body's like, no, I got to receive information about what's around me. Or you know, if you close your eyes and you're you've got headphones on, maybe your taste buds, you know, or your sense of touch and all those things. And so I wonder if, in a sense literally, <laughs> doing a black and white film, removing all these potential distractions right. of the co- different colors that can be there and that can draw our eyes away and our attentions away and these almost like micro distractions, removing those might heighten our attention to the actual dialogue and the actual story and emotion in a movie where but the colors, the myriad colors, as beautiful as they are, can pull us away from that at times. No, I think that's a really good point. Now, let me ask you a question. Did you have, we'll just call them seven samurai mm-hmm. now. We'll go with it. Um, did you have a favorite samurai? Uh, I did. I did. And uh, unfortunately for him, he was the first one to die. Oh! Yeah. Oh! Yeah, I, I really like the, the guy. The woodchopper. Yeah. He, yeah. he had such a good, he was, he was, you know, he was the guy that when he died, they're like, that's such a hard loss because he was the one that was going to bring us joy. He was going to bring us joy the in the hard times. Yeah. And, and the times had just gotten hard right, right there. And so he was my favorite. I appreciated it. He had this very balanced – even though he was he was smiling and, and he was playful, he also you know, was – he was centered and he was steadfast and he was hardworking. And I really liked just the balanced approach. You know, I like that with Seven Samurai, you can have the overly serious guy who hardly ever talks and you – know, Super cool. He was the Boba Fett. He was very the, cool. Yeah. Uh, but then you have the Monkey King on the other side, and then right. in the middle you had, and I can't remember his name. You know, I I couldn't understand most of their names. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I uh, I understand. <laughs> but uh, he was my favorite. Yeah, yeah. no, it, 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 one of the things that I really appreciated about about Seven Samurai is how clearly all these samurai sort of stood out as personalities to yeah. you, and I think that that as an American audience watching. Watching a Japanese movie, that can be a hard thing to do to, to convey that, that sense of, of um, I, I think in any, any movie actually where you have a huge cast of characters to differentiate between them where you really care about each one of them individually and you understand a little bit of them individually. That's a challenging thing to do. I mean, you think about even the Avengers. If you threw them all together in one thing without these separate movies to sort of introduce them, right. how much would we care about any of them? Yeah. It would be hard. 
But in one movie, Kurosawa was able to sort of bring these seven samurai together, people who we had never seen, never met before, uh, for an American audience in a culture that, that is unfamiliar to us. So we're already sort of trying to wade into a different world. Right. And make these characters feel real and tangible and yet very archetypal. And, and I... Uh, I totally agree with you. I think I was so sad when that dude died. It was just and and the thing was another really interesting thing about this movie is that so many of the deaths that we see they feel so pointless. And right. that was a perfect example. It's it's before the big battle starts. They're just invading the bandit camp. They do their thing. They're really successful and then all of a sudden one of the peasants who's who goes along with them, he sees his wife and he tries to rescue her, but his wife walks away and into this burning building, and he's so grieving, and he runs off, and the samurai tries to pull him away, and the samurai is shot at that moment. Yeah. You know, for... When they could have got... should have been on their way. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was pretty interesting. Yeah, I do... That was... That stood out to me as well, not just in that scene, but throughout the movie was each and every death. Even even when there were slow-mo shots in the beginning, you're like, well, that's cool. They use slow-mo. Each and every death felt very brief. Yeah. It did, they did not linger on it. They did not you know, play sad music and violins. It was very stark. Yeah. The loss of life. Like Even the climactic and final death yeah. of Kikuchio, you know, the agent of chaos, you know, the monkey king archetype who, you know – was the one that kind of put a crack in the defenses right. with his recklessness in the first place. Right. And then makes a heroic effort at the end to end the battle but loses his life. They just move – like he dies, his, his naked derriers you know, <laughs> up in the air and then the camera's just like, all right, we're moving on. And you're just like – but yeah. that – almost that lack of care yeah. made it feel all the more painful to us as the viewer. Yeah. yeah. Because it was like this didn't – this was all so pointless. This was all so brief and fleeting. Yeah. And so you kind of really feel the the fragility of life. No, you really do. And I think it, that was an interesting thing that this movie did. We're so used to – and I love these scenes. You know? Yeah. You think about great sword fight scenes. You think about – um, the Princess Bride is, I, I still think, oddly enough, one of the gold standards for just those long 20-minute sword fights right. just everywhere. These, when you look at, at Seven Samurai, deaths come quick, and they are brutal in a strange, they're bloodless, and yet they're Yeah, they're really, brutal in their yeah. simplicity. Yeah, it, it, it goes quickly, and, and you really do understand how, how short life is, especially for these characters in here. Um, in it's it's fascinating actually how I think Seven, Seven Samurai does a thing that I don't know if I've ever seen in in any other movie where it both critiques violence and glamorizes it all at the same time. You know, um, it is you see these samurai and they're looked upon very favorably and they're obviously really cool and the kurosawa spends a lot of time talking about battle strategy and and obviously the 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 final battle takes up a huge amount of screen time i mean this is this is all about essentially a very small intimate war and yet throughout because of the way he films it because of the the brutality and the finality of life that you see here and the poignant scene that we've already talked about at the end where 
where these happy peasants are planting their rice and the samurai are looking at their dead and they're saying, we lost again. We always lose. It's, a, it's just this really powerful statement on, on the horrors and finality of war, even as the movie suggests that sometimes it's necessary. Right. Yeah, and I think other movies try to do that. Like to your point, I think I think there have actually been more films that have tried to do that. But I I don't know there's not as many that have succeeded at it. And I think it may be one of the few that succeeds at it. Mm-hmm. And part of that is that it really doesn't spend much time on the glamorizing of it. Right. You get maybe two scenes with, you know, the Boba Fett silent, you know, sword master yeah. samurai where you see him you know, in a when you meet him, he's right. in this one-on-one duel with this angry other this other angry samurai who doesn't know what he's doing. They're just having a practice duel, right. and then they get in a fight, and the guy's like, "Let's go for real," and he's like, "I don't want to do that," but yeah. then you know the guy won't let it go, and so that's a that's a cool moment where it, you, know, you could say it was glamorized, and then a moment where he's practicing later on. But most of the time, it doesn't feel glamorized. That's right. why I think maybe it feels like it succeeds where others don't. Yeah, is I think most movies that try to do that still end up wallowing. Yeah, if we want to use that word in the glamorization of it and then maybe tack on a oh yeah but this is a problem yeah. at the very end whereas he 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 has a few moments where he's kind of reverent right. of the samurai art but really it's like but in spite of that it's a pretty ugly thing it's an ugly thing you know and i think that it it does an effective job of making these characters heroes in a respect but these tragic heroes these tragic figures and um, the interplay that you see, obviously within an hour that's three hours and 30 minutes long, you have some time to unpack some stuff. But the interplay between the tension between the samurai who come into this town and the peasants who are who are both really needing these samurai and fearful of these samurai at the same time, the, the tension and the interplay between the two is fascinating to yeah. me. Because and, and and how true is that to life? Right. With the fact that a lot of times the things we need are the things that you know scare us the most, and or the things that can be the most destructive to us, or that we've seen be destructive to us in the past. And that's very much the history where samurai weren't always the good guys. No, they were. They not. did some lousy things. I mean, that was and this and this movie and makes this movie, point of it. Yeah, is, is says you know what. They may be helping out here. They may look noble here, but that's not always been the history. Yeah. And how much of that is even just our history as human beings with the natural world, where fire, you know, is been hugely important to the yeah. development of humankind, and yet it's also one of the most destructive things to human life and human flourishing in the wrong context. Yeah. And so, just a sense that as Reverent as we can be of the tools that we have and the tools that we use and the people around us, they can they're they're also unpredictable and they're also well broken it, and yeah. can cause us harm. Yeah, no, and and it really gets to. I mean, obviously, this is not a Christian movie, but I think it gets to that core of Christianity where we're all flawed, we're all sinners, we all have the potential for evil and good within us all. And I think, it, you know, and, and that almost gets back to to. Um, one of the the elements that was inspired by Seven Samurai, you know, the, the whole dualism of, of the Star Wars franchise, this this idea between of holding good and evil within tension within each other. And, and so this movie deals with a lot of really interesting stuff. And I think that that is one of the reasons why it is held up so well and why 
you know, for a lot of people, it might be the only foreign movie they ever hear of or ever see. Yeah. Um, because it has been so influential and because it has it has sort of lasting power. But it is a super long movie. And so I'm I'm really interested. For you, Jake, did it work? Ultimately, yes, it did. Um, it it the the sum of the parts is better than you know the whole is better than yeah it, it ends up working you know some things you're like for example this is this is this will be my parallel um skyfall james bond skyfall skyfall you love this movie i love that I love movie. skyfall when i watch skyfall i look at all the elements inside skyfall and i say uh you know gritty scarred anti-hero character check you know like great action set pieces check compelling creepy villain check like castle a castle standoff at the end check <laughs> like all these things you know a very little sex compared to a james bond movie check great <laughs> i don't need that in my movies so like all these all these pieces i'm like this this is what i want in movies and yet when i was done i was like i, th- I didn't feel satisfied like as a viewer, I was mm-hmm. just like something – for whatever reason, as much as I like all the individual parts, I came away not really liking the movie overall. So Seven Samurai on – conversely, you know, I'm like, oh, I, I don't like these – you know, everybody who cries is just screaming all the time and it's loud and it's annoying and here's a five-minute scene that has nothing to do with the plot at all and here's another five-minute <laughs> scene that has nothing to do with the plot at all and you're like, it's not moving along very fast and it's three and a half hours long. I've got to watch it on three separate nights and I've got other stuff to do. <laughs> no. Oh, but wait. The, the tragedy and the despondency of these farmers is really poignant. And the wisdom and kind of the 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 variety, the marketing mix, if you will, of these samurai is pretty fascinating. And the interplay and, oh, their strategy and, oh, the way Akira Kurosawa is filming it. And so I ended up with this mixed bag of parts. But by the end, I was like, I enjoyed this movie. I like this movie. I'm going to think about this movie. Yeah. Yeah. It worked for me. I, it was interesting because as we were talking about, you know, I never know exactly – you never know exactly how someone's going to react to yeah. a movie. But I knew that Seven Samurai had some elements that really resonated with you, a distinct lack of women, <laughs> <laughs> lots and lots of male bonding, uh, yeah. action, all that kind of stuff. I figured, well, this this might be something Jake likes. But I also know you have the intention span of a fruit fly. Uh-huh. And so I was thinking – Three hours and thirty minutes, because I had forgotten actually how long it was when we when I chose yeah, it. For you, you know it's long, but you're like yeah. it's probably like it two forty five. Yeah. <laughs> or it felt long. Yeah, there's been movies like that where I'm like that was so long that you look that was hour forty five. Exactly. Just a bad movie. Exactly. I just saw a couple of those. <laughs> but but yeah, when when I picked it for you, I had forgotten I was making a three hour twenty minute twenty seven minute commitment for you. <laughs> So, and I thought, oh, goodness, black and white, more than three hours. I don't know. We'll just see. So, but it worked for you. It did. I, you know, if, uh, so I know we, for the, our backlist Hall of Shame, I got to say what I would, what I rate it now, like mm-hmm. on my enjoyment of it, and what I probably would have rated it had I seen it at the time. Right. And so what I'd say now is that I would give it 
a seven. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was in. I was kind of between a six and a half and a seven and a half, and so I landed seven. Uh, you know, it's that tug of war between the parts that I didn't like and the parts that I liked, right? Right. But I, I'd give it a seven because it ultimately is a package that works very well and holds up very well. And hey, if you want to break it up into two or three viewings, the nice thing is with a movie like that is it has natural breaking points. Whether you do an intermission, right. it has an intermission. Yeah, it's got an intermission breaking point, so do it in two sittings. Or right. if you want to do it in three, like I did, it has other natural breaking points, and so just do it in three sittings. Um, so there's ways around it that aren't convenient, but at the same time, it's nice to slow down right? as right. a modern viewer. And yeah. so uh, I, I've actually started doing that with, even with Netflix shows where my sister and I were at the same point. We had both finished Stranger Things season one. We wanted to see Stranger Things season two. I said, let's watch it together, but let's do one episode a week. Ooh. And that was fantastic yeah. to have to sit on that and to have to have a cliffhanger and not be able to immediately start the next show. That was really nice. And so, yeah. you know what? It's okay to do that with Seven Samurai. It really and it's is. it's accessible. Yeah. Now, what do I think I would have rated at the time? You know what? At the time, I wouldn't have had all of these social media apps destroying my brain for my professional work <laughs> and destroying my attention span with it. And so I think I probably would have not you know would have been okay mm. with the length of it more so than i was this time and i think that type of over that kind of more stage acting style melodramatic style was more prevalent at the time you know just in general in all yeah. movies and so i think that wouldn't have bothered me as much and so i think i would have given it a a, a nine and a half out of ten you know it's really time. yeah it's it's really interesting because back in the day actually this movie was not particularly well received. Yeah. It was the most expensive movie in Japanese cinematic history um, up until that point. I mean, it was hugely expensive. Toho, the original studio, actually shut down the production a couple of times, but Kurosawa knew that they would have to come back because he had shot so much film for it, so he would just go fishing until Toho would call him <laughs> back, essentially. So, That's a great gig. <laughs> it really is. And when, when it was first released, I think people thought, well, this is all right, but it wasn't considered to be the classic. It's only... It, over time, because it has held up, I think, it, it has grown in stature. Yeah. And now it's considered to be one of the best, maybe, if not the pinnacle of Japanese cinema, right up there in the top three. Right. It always helps when it inspires mimicry. Right, inspires... exactly. And it was hugely influential for, for George Lucas and, and Francis Ford Coppola. They watched Kurosawa almost religiously. Um, and so they took in a lot of and, – and here's the interesting thing too. Kurosawa was a huge fan of, of American Westerns. And yeah. so in a lot of his movies, you see a lot of Western elements and, and that's the same right with this one. Um, would we call them then – would we call this a sushi Western instead of spaghetti Western? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm not even going to go there. Uh, I'm just curious. You know, we call them spaghetti westerns because they're yeah these Italian filmmakers making westerns, and so this has a, a bit of a western no, vibe to it, it even though really it's in does. feudal, you know, feudal Japan. It's so, a, is it a, and he was influenced by western directors. No, it, it it really is interesting. He actually said that that westerns, good westerns, develop their own grammar. And after watching so many westerns, he had learned the grammar. And mm. so he instilled that within a lot of his movies. And then, of course, it translated back into America uh, in its influence with a lot of the great directors of the 1970s and 80s. And, of course, much more explicitly with the Magnificent Seven movie. Right. Um, 
It, well, yeah. Which was essentially a beat-for-beat beat remake just in the Old West. Um, it's really fascinating. I think, I think, for me, I appreciate the movie a little bit more than I like it. I like the movie pretty well. I really appreciate a lot of what Kurosawa did. I would also probably give it a 7 just in terms of how I react to it. I actually think I like the original Magnificent Seven a little bit better, even though I would totally agree that Seven Samurai is actually a better movie. Yeah, because for Paul, if Paul has a movie types, he likes meathead action heroes <laughs> who just shoot things up, a la just, James Bond, a la you know, Ethan Hunt, a la the Magnificent Seven movie. Oh, I can't wait for the Mission Impossible movie. <laughs> so... <laughs> No, you really should watch the original Magnificent Seven, not the not the remake, which was just passable. the The original Magnificent Seven with Yul Brenner, Steve McQueen, it's pretty cool. King of Cool, right there. King of Cool. I will say, I wonder too how much my enjoyment of Seven Samurai was enhanced, like helped me get past the parts that I didn't care for as much. I wonder how much of that was enhanced by the fact that you know one of my very first movie theater experiences. I'd had a few before it, but one of my very first, um, because it was, as a kid, we didn't go to the theaters a lot. So one of the very early ones was going to see A Bug's Life in theater. So it was like, this Pixar was bursting onto the scene, right? This they were they weren't this juggernaut yet. They were a young upstart company making these films. And it was uh, you know, it was amazing to me as a kid just to be in a theater and to see this movie and A Bug's Life and how epic that was. And of course, now we know. Now I I know people knew at the time, but now I know that that's basically a, almost a shot for shot, exactly. or at least a beat for beat remake right. of Seven Samurai. And so, how much of my own enjoyment of Seven Samurai was bolstered by the fact that I had really seen Seven Samurai already as a kid and enjoyed that story. And so, I was seeing those parallels and I was looking for those parallels and sort of, you know, having those little moments of yeah, that's that's just like in Bug's Life when even though it's vice versa, but. That, yeah. I think that helped my enjoyment of it as well. Yeah. But just kind of remember back to when I was however old, six, seven years old, watching A Bug's Life in theaters. Just a little bit after you watched Fantasia. <laughs> yeah, just not not long after. Not long after. So there you have it, Seven Samurai. Did you guys watch – did you watch along with us? If so, come talk to Paul and I on the Twitter and talk about what you liked and didn't like. Or watch it really quick. Or, or or watch it really quick in three sittings. <laughs> exactly. And then come talk to us about it. Just watch it on like toy, double you, speed or something. Yeah, you can get it from the Criterion Collection. I got it from the library. Uh, there's probably play. I think you can get – I think you can watch it from Amazon Prime if you pay a little bit of cashola for it. Um, so if you didn't already, check it out. It's See what you worth, think. It's one of those movies that, that if, if you you're like a film movies, buff. Yeah it's, yeah. it's sort of one of those movies that people probably should see. But content to caveat – it's a little more rough than you might expect. There's there's no gore, but you know people die all the time. There's a, a there's cursing. there's some cursing and an ample amount of male rear nudity. <laughs> yeah, that's very that true. W- that I was failed. You know, Paul failed to warn me about <laughs> yeah, ample, how many dudes' butts I'd be seeing. Ample male rear it's, nudity. It's it's <laughs> it's. I guess it's culturally appropriate. They wear the, you know, like yeah. their little underwear yeah. loincloth things that are basically 
thongs. Let's just be real. They're it just seems male it leaves thongs. you exposed in so many different ways. Yeah, and, even and so. Kurosawa, in all of his brilliance, decides we should have some close-ups of that. Like there's that shot of that guy working in the field, and it's like I got a close-up. I'm looking at people in the field, but right here in the foreground is a dude's butt. So there you go. And his thong. So Buns content, galore. content caveat, Paul AC. <laughs> With Jake Roberson, since Paul didn't warn you the first time. <laughs> uh, but now it's time for the most least important thing. Here we are in the most least important thing. Here we are. Here we we, we are here. We are here. Are we here? Possibly. Here. Here. Are we. Are. It's just like the Old Spice commercials. Right? Starring Yoda. Anyways, this is the way we love to wrap up every single show. <laughs> not like this, really. <laughs> not, not, <laughs> not in this around with exact grandma. manner, but with this, with this segment. It's the most least important thing. It's the stuff in the culture that is going nuts, and then we're, we're here to temper it for you, you know, to, to put it in a little cold water and, and kind of tell you, you know what, you know what, maybe this is just lukewarm. Maybe it's not as sizzling hot as you thought it was. Or, or maybe we're taking the little tiny grains of rice the mustard seeds, if you will, and growing them into massive trees to show you just how valuable they are. Does your it's the most least important thing. of this segment just get longer and longer every single episode? It does. Eventually, it'll overtake the entire show. <laughs> You'll just have an introduction to yeah. most least important thing. It won't thing. be Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. It'll be the introduction to the most least important thing. <laughs> Tune in next week for... <laughs> so uh, what, what, uh, what I'm bringing to the table this time is kind of a big deal, and I think it's ridiculous. All right. And so some of you may have heard that uh, this actress from Star Wars The Last Jedi, she played Rose. Her name is Kelly Marie Tran. Mm -hmm. She recently deleted her Instagram account. Is that ridiculous? Did you hear about this? No, I did not. In and of itself, deleting an Instagram account is not a ridiculous thing. In fact, it can be an amazingly brilliant thing. Yeah, I, I have deleted my Instagram account and in so this case, hard that I never even had one. It's a, it's a brilliant thing for her, but the reason she had to is ridiculous. And that's because she was receiving so much verbal harassment and abuse from quote-unquote Star Wars fans oh. that she couldn't take it and she had to get off. Because people were so mad about her character or they were so mad about how The Last Jedi was and decided to blame her character for at least some of it that they just flooded her Instagram with harassment and abuse and she she just had to delete it to get away from it. And it's one of those things where I didn't hear – you know I'm not a Star Wars fanboy so I'm not in the midst of right. this culture a lot. Right. I, I like Star Wars fine but I'm not saturating myself right. in it. So I didn't hear about it till she deleted it and then that was a trend and then realized, oh, here I was thinking, oh, yeah, I saw Star Wars last year. It was fine. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Cool. It, yeah. I, I gave it like a seven and a half or it whatever I good. gave it. It was good. Fine film. Yeah. But here all these months later, Star Wars fans are still mad about it. And this was underscored for me in that in my day job doing social media, I, was, I, I saw that there was a comment uh, on a YouTube video for uh, the company I work for where that company was talking about Star Wars and this comment was like, everyone, everyone who reads this, please 
boycott Star Wars The Last Jedi. We we can do this. We are a community. We can boycott this. If we don't watch them, we can finally get the Star Wars movies that, that we want and we deserve. And so boycott this and watch this YouTube video so you can you can see why oh. you need to boycott these films so we can get the movie the fans want. And Which deserve. is the fans just want the same thing regurgitated over and over and over again. It seems like I, I hate I, to say that, but yeah. And so we're uh, these two things kind of underscored something that I just think we have to get on the table, and that is, you know what? Movie makers don't owe us anything. The makers of Star Wars don't owe us anything. Conversely, we don't owe them anything. So yes, if you don't want to go see it, don't go don't see go it. Don't go see it. But the way we treat, the way we feel entitled, fan culture is reaching, is starting to reach this. And there have been pockets of this, but it's getting more mainstream, and I think that's what bothers me in this regard, is that fan culture, it's becoming more and more mainstream with the advent of social media to think that we are owed something right. as fans. Right. And yes, I believe creators ought to think of the audience. That's sure. something I talk about all the time sure. in my work is that, yes, you must consider the audience. You must try to – but you know what? Sometimes the things we make for the audience don't end up landing with right. any of the audience or maybe they land with half of the audience or three-quarters of the audience or one-quarter of the – like you never know. Make for the fans but no, you're not always going to please the fans. Yeah. And we as fans have to understand we're not – we're not always going to – like no one is beholden to us right. and our – like our exact take on what something should be. Yeah. But now we feel entitled yeah. and I don't like that. No, it's a fascinating thing and it, it might be worth in and of itself its own podcast. There's like four podcasts right in this one yeah. thing because, I mean, you really do have that sense of entitlement now that I think social media has really amped to the 100th degree. And, and, and I think that the Star Wars culture, which I am kind of sort of a part of. I mean, I love Star Wars. I grew up with Star Wars. You would really, be. Yeah. If I, you didn't have self-control, you could be one of these fans. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that I think that um, it's, a, it, it's a tribute to the original story that it has created such a passionate fervent fan base and that the story has resonated with so many people so many different ways and and it's it's great that they feel um so invested in it but yet you have these creators that need to tell their own stories within the context of this larger story and i think that's totally permissible and i think that that when we allow stories to be sort of driven by the mob we all know that that a story, a, a much more resonant story is told by a singular vision, a singular yeah. visionary. Um, and when you get a lot of hands into the pot, it makes for a weaker story. With It seems like the, the Star Wars, where Star Wars is right now, you have like 20 million hands in the pot. And that, I think, can create some not very resonant stories. And I think it's, it's a recipe, honestly, for killing the franchise. That's all beside the point of why are you treating this really nice person so terribly? Treat human beings well even if you disagree with them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All she did was was try to, you know, do her best in a role, in a movie, you know, doing her job. And that's fine if you don't think it was the best job. There's plenty right. of people that I don't think do the best job in acting. Right. But does that mean I think they're subhuman? Does that mean I think they should be treated in racist manners? No one oh, should ever be treated goodness. in a racist manner no. or an unkind manner. Yeah. Like you can you can disagree with people kindly. Yeah. And well, you can even say, you know what? She wasn't my favorite. Yeah. 
Just I like do, I can say, Daniel Day-Lewis isn't my favorite. We can talk here. Like, if we were talking about The Last Jedi, we could talk about Rose's, you know, Rose in the movie and say, you know what? Her character didn't work for me. That's totally fine. You can talk with your friends. Yeah. You can talk with your family. But, man, just leave the poor girl alone. Which is a great segue, actually. To yeah. My, my, uh, but here you go, Star Wars fanboys. Luke Skywalker didn't work for me in A New Hope. So there you go. Yeah. Eat your hearts out. So, speaking, kindly, I say that with love. <laughs> so, so, speaking of speaking of vitriol, kindness and vitriol. Yeah. So this uh, this last week, I had the opportunity to see a movie called "Won't You Be My Neighbor." It is actually one of the most uh, most anticipated movies of the summer, even though it's a documentary about Mister Rogers. Um, it is. A lovely movie and the thing that impressed me the most about it is how current it feels mm. in in a way just by what you were talking about jake i think that that we live in an age where there's so much anger and so much vitriol and there's so we have this need to talk uh and yell and scream at each other about what we think i mean we do our share of it on this podcast let's be honest we do um, but mostly just at each other. But mostly at each other. <laughs> and we have a good time doing it. But I think that, that we live in a time which feels so countercultural to the lessons that Mr. Rogers, in a, in a way, taught us. And the thing that I love about uh, this movie, and I really did love this movie. It's probably one of my two favorite movies of the year thus far, um, is that it reminded us of some of those lessons. And it reminded us... Uh, of ways that maybe we can look at our own lives and our own world and bring a little more Mr. Rogers into the world. You know, he was he was kind. He listened. He was very gentle in his beliefs, but incredibly firm in them. He never backed away from them. And and you see that over and over again in Won't You Be My Neighbor. You see these elements of, of just what kind, decent human being he was. And I think that that's sometimes something that I feel we lack in this world is just basic human decency and kindness. And I think that that Mr. Rogers is gone. He's been gone since 2003. Um, there's, an, there's a knee-jerk reaction to say we need someone like him in our world. But you think about all the kids that Mr. Rogers taught all these lessons to Year after year, decade after decade, he trained us to be him in his absence, to reflect his values. And I think maybe those of us who grew up with Mr. Rogers could exemplify those values a little bit better. I was going to say, in a sense, there's two classic quotes you know, that I think of, of one, be the good that you want to see in the world. Correct. Right? Correct. And then the other one is... All that's needed for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And I think one of the – Mr. Rogers is incredible. I grew up watching him. My kids watch him now on, even though that we watch him. I watched him over rabbit ears on a, you know, old tube TV that weighed 1,000 pounds and my kids watch him on a 55-inch, 65-inch <laughs> flat screen TV streaming through a PlayStation on Amazon Prime. But we're watching the same show. But – um. Did I save my second quote? Oh yeah, all yeah. that's oh yeah, all that. I almost lost my train of thought there. But 
there's this sense of I wonder – and AV Club talked about this. I was reading something from the AV Club talking about this documentary and saying that Mr. Rogers since his death, you know, it's been 15 years. He's kind of turned le- – he's less of a person now and more of an ideal. Mm-hmm. We kind of hold him up as a shining – Right. We've all, we've really ideal. We've really almost deified him as a mm-hmm. culture. There's very few – like in this culture where we're so fractured over everything, about the only thing I can think of – if you guys can think of something else, tell me, please, on Twitter. The only thing I can think of that unites us all is Mr. Rogers. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Nobody has anything bad to say about <laughs> him, which is a testament to his legacy but is also a little bit dangerous mm. in that when we hold him up as this ideal, sometimes we don't strive for that. Like we turn our ideal into a deity and then we that deity becomes too far removed from our present reality right. Right. and um, not even get into the idolatry part. But become so far removed from our present reality that we stop trying to incorporate the things we like about them. And they just kind of become this nice shiny object to talk about when it's convenient and to ignore other times. But the fact of the matter is, one, he was human being. If he was still alive for the last 15 years, I'm sure he would have said something wrong at some point. He's a human being. Yeah. And the internet you know, likes to find everything wrong that we all do. But then two, um, I just wonder how much we think that's a relic of the past and we say, oh, I wish for that time instead right. of to your exactly. point saying, no, I can take this up and be this in my own sphere today. And But too often I think we sit back and say, you know what? It's just coming back to our Dark Knight discussion from the other week. There's too much hate out there. I can't solve it all. I'm just going to stay out of it. Yep. Yep. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting time in our culture. And I think that uh, one thing, if you go see Won't You Be My Neighbor, and it should be rolling out various places over the next few weeks, I would really encourage you to go because I think um, it shows him – you talk about the deification of Mr. Rogers, and I think that there's there's some validity to that. This humanizes him as well. Um, and it just reminds him what a difference basic decency can make in the world. Yeah. It doesn't take much. It just takes a little bit of consideration. It just takes a little bit of decency. And, and I think that, that all of a sudden, if we just stop screaming at each other and listen to each other once in a while... I, the world be would be exponentially improved. I agree. I agree. And with that, it's time for me to pick for Paul. <laughs> yes. Off of his backlist. So for next episode, <laughs> what we're going to be tackling, Paul, what I'm going to make you watch, what you have remaining on your list, there's three films. To Kill a Mockingbird, Saving Private Ryan, and The Italian Job. There's a lot more. That's just the three right. we've got to tackle right now. Yeah. So for the next time, you know what? We talked a lot about black and white. We're going to keep it black and white, Paul. Ooh. We're going to keep it black and white. Did I say the three? I said there were three. You did. Okay, good. My brain's not working. You guys remember, <laughs> really... when, do you guys remember when my alarm went off earlier? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anyways, we're going to keep it black and white, Paul, and we're going to watch To Kill a Mockingbird. All righty. For all of you out there that want to watch along with us, this is on Netflix. So if you have Netflix, stream it along with us. If you don't, I guarantee that your library has it. And if it doesn't, I will give you your money back for this podcast. <laughs> Guaranteed. That's a guarantee. You can't take in it writing. to the bank because yeah. you know, there's no money to it. But it's a guarantee. <laughs> so anyways, next time we're going to come back. We're going to talk about another black and white classic, To Kill a Mockingbird. But for now, we're signing off. I'm Jake. I'm Paul. We'll catch you guys on the flip side. Bye.